All right, welcome to TK Live. Uh, this is Matt Taibbi. Can everybody hear me? Can I get a couple of thumbs up so I can uh, make sure that, that uh, people can actually hear me? Excellent, excellent. That's great. All right, so for the first time in a couple of a uh, couple of episodes, this sh- this should go off without a hitch from the beginning. Um, thanks everybody to. Uh, who's come out today. Basically what I want to do with this show is, uh, go over a couple things that were in the, um, in the America this week column that I wrote this week, uh, before, before even just get to the specific items, uh, in the show, wanted to talk a little bit about how we put this, um, how we put this column together. The concept is a little bit like, Obviously, everybody in the world has been doing these kinds of newsletters for a while, uh, and you'll find them all over the place on the web. Uh, and some of them are, are really well done. Some of them are are just like people sort of randomly putting their thoughts out and adding a few links here and there. Um, and you know, I, I've been looking at that format uh, for a while. But thinking that uh, maybe there there could be a way to do something different with it, and the idea that I had was was to make make this sort of like a written version of a newscast uh, that would use a lot of the same techniques of building a newscast, which it involves, among other things, like you know editorial meetings where you get together you. Uh, try to figure out what the biggest stories of the day are. You have to regularly poll uh, your sources to see what's going on in their world. Um, and then if something pops up that's of significance, you know, once upon a time, it wasn't just something that, you know, moved into your Twitter feed or your social media feed. Uh, reporters actually had to identify things that happened and, and write about them so that people heard about them. Uh, because otherwise, you know, when there were only a couple of newspapers in town, there was a very good chance that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know about something important that was happening. Um, so th- this is sort of what I'm, tr- what I really want to eventually do is, uh, you know, not just make use of talking to people that I know, um, and have met over the years working on stories, but also to do things like crowdsourcing and, you know, maybe doing some queries in the internet, um, if, you know, so that people, if they have, if they spot something interesting, um, they can send it in and then I can, you know, do, do the typical journalist thing and look it up and make a couple of calls and see whether it's really a story or not or what the real angles are. And so that's that's kind of what this column um, is, is supposed to be. Uh, what usually what I've what I've been doing in the in the, in the first few is um, there there have been a couple of sto- of the items in each story that I've worked on, kind of like I would with a, a real feature, you know, interviewing people involved. Um, some of them I, I got because 
they were there were there were people who I knew who had contacted me, like for instance the UAW story, um, or the railway strike story was something that I had, uh, had been told about, kind of in an ongoing way by by several different people. Uh, the report about the the Fed, um, the 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 sort of minority. Uh, committee report on the Fed and, you know, potential Chinese infiltration. Uh, somebody sent me that report. Uh, so some of these are going to be more in depth than others, but what I want, what I want, the place I want to get to eventually is uh, each one of these items will be worked up the way a real news story will be, um, would be in a newscast. You know, for those who don't know, you know <laughs> the old version of a, of a newscast used to be um, you know, roughly four or five sentences per story. Uh, one of my first jobs in journalism, believe it or not, was writing the newscast for a little tiny um, uh, news affiliate in Kingston, New York, called WTZA. And uh, so I used to have to write the news. And what they would do is, is you would get an item either over the wires or, or from some local source, and you would have to take something that was actually really a two or three thousand word story and compress it to three or four sentences. Uh, and so this, there was really a lot more understanding behind the scenes than you got um, uh, in, in the actual newscast. So, um, but I think that's necessary because otherwise, if, if you just do a drive by thing and take a couple of facts from a story that you see on the internet, uh, you're you're probably going to get it a little bit wrong at least. So uh, where I want to get to eventually with this column is is just um, is is working each one of them up at least a little bit so that um, you know the, there's a little bit of extra uh, perspective and or knowledge and that gets added to to each one now. So in that in that regard, for the column this week, I think there were a couple of stories that I was really particularly interested in. Um, the big one was the UAW convention, which uh, I, I first heard about because of this this bizarre situation where the UAW um, refused to give uh, the uh, the WSWS the uh, World Socialist website. Uh, press credentials, which is strange because they had never done that in their history, even going uh, all the way back to um, the days when it wasn't a, a website, but it was actually a newspaper called The Bulletin. Uh, obviously, there's an ideological difference between those um, outlets. The you know the, this little socialist website um, doesn't believe in this kind of labor union. It believes in that they're basically complicit uh, with management and uh, and that they're corrupt, but that's not a good reason to, to deny uh, press credentials to to um, any kind of organization. Also, it's just bad strategy. Um, I talked to a couple other people involved in this story, and, and there were you know there's just frustration like that the UAW um, does a lot of things that get itself into unnecessary trouble. Uh, the, 
the story this week about it launching its convention and, and having open um, uh, elections for the first time in its history, uh, which could result, you know, it really could result in some interesting uh, results. Uh, you know, that, that all started thanks to a criminal investigation that began, um, you know, not quite a decade ago, but quite a long time ago. And it, and it wasn't any kind of like organized crime investigation. It was just a, a, a sort of garden variety, um, uh, sort of corruption probe that looked at things like embezzlement. Um, you know, there's a lot of silly, silly, ridiculous, over the top uh, behavior, you know, where you have, um, you know, say the, the a former treasurer embezzling over $2 million or, you know, I think I mentioned this in the story that um, they were, you know, using, using, stealing money to buy liquor and cigars and pay for golfing out, outings. Um, there was something they did that wasn't criminal. It wasn't against the rules. It was just, it's just the kind of thing that doesn't go over well with the union. Um, rank and file, uh, you know, for instance, spending $95,000 on backpacks emblazoned with the name of the secretary treasurer, Frank Stuglin, um, or throwing a party for $300,000 for a thousand people. And there was another one, uh, that was, I think, $19,000 for, um, for fewer people. Uh, but, um, but yeah, so they, 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 they've gotten, oh, that's right, it's $19,200 $19, $19, for approximately 800 to 100 conference attendees. Um, and, you know, you, you think about it, uh, the, the union dues are basically like two hours uh, of work per month. So each of these members, you know, these auto worker members are paying, you know, 60 bucks a month or whatever it is um, so that so that the, the people in this organization can throw themselves, uh, could make backpacks with their names on them uh, for $95,000. Like, you know, I, I think it, it makes sense that the, there's got to be an end to this eventually. So um, there were a couple of things I wanted to, to point out. Like uh, another benefit of this kind of column is that I, I can link to source material, which is a, a complaint that I've often gotten from um from people uh, who who read the news in general, uh, but also TK, which is like, where can I go to find uh, just the the base the basic material? So I'm going to try in every instance to make sure that people can actually see the um, you know the original reports to the extent that they're po they're public and possible um, and, and out there, uh, or if they're on Pacer or something, I'll I'll, I'll try to reproduce. Uh, that in every case and make sure that's accessible for every story. But just to give you an example, here, here's a, an item from a status report by the independent monitor on the UAW. Um, after the filing of the initial status report from November 2021 through March 2022, as detailed further below, the union's cooperativeness veered sharply in the wrong direction. Rather than the UAW providing the promised oral interview summaries to the monitor, the union withdrew from its commitment to do so, citing concerns 
that the monitor might improperly use that information in a way that could become public. Uh, and then the, the monitor, who is the former TARP bailout inspector, Neil Borowski, um, it, with whom I, I was familiar uh, just because he, you know, I'd done a lot of work on the TARP uh, back in the day, but he, um, he went on to write about the parties and, uh, and he, he writes, the monitor conveyed to the union the importance of imposing, imposing controls on these sorts of expenditures to provide conference planners with clear guidance on what is appropriate. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing that the history of the case is in, is in that document, which is linked there. Uh, and again, this is the second week in a row where, I, where I'm trying to put in a, a, a union story because uh, labor reporters have been expunged from a lot of um, news organizations. So we're not getting a lot of stories about things like the, you know, perhaps pending railroad strike. Um, so I'm trying to keep an eye out for stuff like that. If anybody out there in the uh, in the audience uh, is in that world and and or you know here's here's of strikes or things brewing, um, you know I would love to I would love to hear what you've got uh, to tell me, and I'd be happy to look to look into it. A uh, couple other things that that I thought were really interesting, and I just wanted to talk about before we open this up for discussion. Uh, the reason I put in the QAnon story, even though that wasn't technically something that happened last week, the, the, um, Q or somebody purporting to be Q, uh, actually appeared about, um, a month ago, sort of towards the end of, um, of June. And what I found so fascinating about the story and, and, and kind of infuriating was that it? It's basically impossible to find Q if you go searching for it. And to me, this this is like the the ultimate example of what's wrong with, um, you know, the the, the kind of modern content moderated internet. Uh, even as an academic exercise, you know, they they uh, they've put so many controls into things like the search engine on Google and. Um, all of the, of the different uh, news reports, and there were lots of them, you know, from Bloomberg to CNN, the New York Times, um, they will talk about, uh, they will talk about the story, but they will not send you directly to the source material. And this is becoming a, um, you know, an increasingly uh, conspicuous habit of the new breed of, of uh, straight news reporters, if they think it's something you shouldn't look at, they won't show it to you. So they're making that decision for you, um, which is really, really frustrating. I, I don't know whether they think that readers are so weak that they can't, um, you know, that they can't handle material unless it's just piled in layers of contextualization. But uh but that's the way um, they do these stories now. I actually saw a, a QAnon story that contained a link to um, to a former a site that was formerly active um, that had I, I guess once uh, posted Q updates 
and commentary, but they put the link in because it's no longer active. Uh, so that tells you that they're making a conscious decision to not put the link into the active site uh, because uh, they just don't want you to look. They, know, they, 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 I guess they think that you know people can't handle it, and they're they're, um, and so this has become uh, basically a, a, a convention of modern news reporting, which is we're only going to tell you what we think is the proper context about the story. We're just not going to tell you what it is. Now, it, it should be noted that not everyone agrees that this is actually Q who's come back. Uh, I didn't find the Q post particularly interesting anyway. I never, I, I think the story is interesting. I never really fully understood it. Um, I was assigned to do a Q story for, uh, for Rolling Stone. And I, I did a brief one and mostly what I found interesting about it was the, uh, a chart that someone had done, which, you know, purported to show all the different links and, um, and connections between all of the various nefarious groups, uh, which, which was, I just thought was funny, but, uh, but I, I, I think Q has been, has been blown up in the public imagination, or at least in the imagination of the traditional news media into this thing that so completely represents pure evil uh, and terror that it just can't, uh, it can't be uh, countenanced by the average person, which I think it only gives it, you know, sort of more elan with, with people, right? It, it adds mystery and, and uh, attractiveness uh, and, and rebel status that it wouldn't otherwise have. Uh, so, you know, whether, whether this is Q or not coming back, the fact that they're going to continue to do this content moderation whack-a-mole with it, um, I, I think it's only going to drive more people to it. Uh, and then also the last thing I wanted to, to get to before I uh, opened it up, because I, I did want to have more questions this time. There haven't been enough in the last couple of episodes. Um, but this, uh, this report by the, um, by the Senate, Homeland Security and Governmental uh, and Governmental Affairs Committee, uh, which in the past but um, has always been uh, a you know a really solid group of congressional investigators. Uh, you know, I don't I don't know the people who are in this particular group all all that well, um, and I certainly don't know the uh, the folks in the minority staff, but. Uh, they did issue this report, and just one thing I want to wanted to mention about, like how to read something like this, um, this new new report, which by the way is entitled "China's Threat to the Fed: Chinese Influence and, Inf and Information Theft at U.S. Federal Reserve Banks." Uh, so this is the the ranking member Rob Portman's. Uh, initiative. He wanted to do a report, I guess, taking a shot at the Fed. There was a little bit of a partisan blowback to this report, which suggested that, um, you know, there, there was, there was some belief that this had been done, this report had been written for political reasons, 
uh, to take a shot at people like Janet Yellen or um, or even Jerome Powell. And, you know, be that as, as it may, you know, perhaps there's a little bit of that in there. Uh, but when you go in and you actually read this report, uh, you know, there, there are a few assertions that I, that I wondered about, like how serious is that really? Um, but the thing that was really interesting, I thought was uh, this passage, and I'll just read it out loud here. Um, a Federal Reserve counter- counterintelligence analysis identified 13 persons of interest as having connections with known Chinese talent recruitment plan members or, quote, having similar patterns of activity uh, the Federal Reserve analyst deemed, unquote, of potential concern. Federal Reserve investigators dubbed these individuals representing no fewer than eight of the 12 Federal Reserve banks as the, quote, key network. So why is that significant? The significance of that is it's not Rob Portman and Rob Portman's committee making the assertion. This is saying that the Fed itself um, had identified a problem or at least thought it identified a problem. And that was significant enough to still be existing in the record, uh, and which I think is a piece of news that probably should have been reported. You know, I, there, there's not a, a, a lot in this report that would tell you exactly what what the uh, aim about all this is. There's there's a lot about what happened. There, there's a recount of a, um, you know, the story of a person who was uh, forcibly detained four times in Shanghai, which raised questions to me. Like, if you were forcibly detained once, I feel like I wouldn't go back the next three times, but whatever. Um, and there were, there was a lot of insinuation about people who had contacts with Chinese officials. Uh, and that, you know, you never know whether that stuff, stuff is innocent or not, but certainly the, the, the fact that the Fed itself, A, that it has a counterintelligence unit and B, that that unit identified a bunch of people as being suspect. Um, and they also... Uh, described in, in another place um, that some of these people use "quote unquote" tradecraft when they once the uh, the Senate investigators started to ask them questions, switching to anonymous accounts, using um, using encrypted uh, messaging, which again isn't necessarily an indication of guilt, but it's it's just interesting that the Fed itself thought it had a problem uh, and. This, you know, the, the the significance of that is, you know, it's potentially large. I think the um, there there's definitely a difference of opinion uh, with within uh, sort of on the hill about how much to do about certain kinds of uh, corruption in the financial markets. There's some hesitation about whether to go after the Chinese about certain things. Um, but I think this is an interesting story and. Uh, should have gotten more press and, and didn't. So, uh, and then the rest of it, you know, I think there's, you see that uh, Eric um, included a bunch of stuff at the bottom that I thought was really interesting. Um, you know, these reports uh, about overdraft fees, there's a guy named his boat overdraft, a banker, you know, because they're making so much money. I mean, 
the idea that there could be uh, i didn't include this fact in here but in um or at least i don't think i did but the the uh by 2008 uh the entire industry was making uh 36 billion dollars a year on on overdraft uh, fees which is it's just a huge <laughs> huge number which speaks to the fact that i think most people don't know um how these systems work uh it's analogous to some other things that i've written about in the past like uh credit card fees or fees for missing missing a payment like automatic cases are registered judgments entered uh in those judgments there's often you know piles of fees that you you know are never told about or or wouldn't don't know about unless you read the fine print i think this is another story like that and uh also uh, it should be noted bloomberg um did a terrific job with this story uh they um you know they they occasionally do really excellent investigative work uh this is um what i only know one of the reporters here this is his name is mac max abelson but they had like seven people um doing this piece maybe even more actually i think it's i think it was it was five or six primary people on the byline plus a couple of other people who contributed so that's that's a sizable piece of investigative journalism. Don't see that a whole lot anymore. Um, so I definitely recommend that people take a look at that. Um, all right. Well, uh, that, that's about it. I, you know, I, I'm also really interested if people have suggestions or um, ways that the, this could be more interesting or accessible. I definitely would, would like to hear that. So let's open it up for questions if we could. Um, a second. All right, I think Calvin's up. Hi, Matt. Hello. Hey, Calvin. How's it going? Yep. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, I can. Excellent. Okay. Oh, no, thank you. This is fantastic. I'm, I'm glad you are uh, curating the news. Um, there's a lot There's a lot of great stuff in there. I, I got to say, I have a question for you that's not on this docket if i can ask it mm-hmm. yeah um i i emailed you this the, the weird i live in a in a sort of small city in pennsylvania and it's got one of these like old money families that that funds a newspaper and in the last couple of years they funded a special investigative journalist just to look at like the rise of christian nationalism slash seemingly like russian stuff Huh. Which is very weird. I mean, it seems like it would have been a fun job, but um, yeah, they basically started writing about this guy named Charles Bowsman, who who is just this rich kid who ended up in Russia in the nineties, and I he I think he was working as a translator for like kind of milk toast mainstream news services. Have you ever heard of him, Charles Bowsman? I am looking. at this is a Lancaster thing, right? <laughs> yes, and it, it it sort of jumped the the shark from this like small town newspaper project and ended up in the New York Times finally because they wrote this super long profile of him. I, I would love to hear your take on this guy because it he sort of seems like he he was in Russia. He he was sort of like a fail son in the traditional 
scum left sense of the word, but then right. he ended up being like a weird right wing grifter that ended up back in Russia. Like, <laughs> and good. Yeah. Well, I, I, I guess I wonder, this is a question for you. Like I, I started doing, I was, I just worked on a big long project about Victoria's secret and Jeffrey Epstein. And uh, we came across this Broward County Sheriff's deputy who sort of got, um, had started a whistleblower site down in Florida and he ended up getting his house raided by the FBI. And he also (laughs) fled to Russia and started like a weird Russian news site. And now is doing things like going to Ukraine and like stumping for Putin. It's, it's super weird because I, I personally, like I had this very weird experience just recently with a visiting relative who works in news and is a really smart, competent reporter and writer Mm-hmm. And she started just listing people she thinks are, are Russian assets. <laughs> and <laughs> your name was <laughs> included on that list uh, along with, it was super, it was such a bizarre, like, po- it was almost like the 9-11 years when you'd meet like a 9-11 truther because we had, we were talking about things like the Mueller report, you know, and, and, and I was basically like, well, the, the Mueller report contained nothing or, or the, there is no crime. There's no evidence of anything significant here. And she was pushing back and saying, oh, no, there is tons of evidence in that. So it wasn't as though, like, we hadn't read we hadn't read the news. We'd both read news about things. We just had, like, completely differing um, interpretations of what happened. So I, my question is, sorry, that was a super long, rambly thing. No, no, but that's really interesting. My My question is, like, because obviously she wasn't, she was, and it goes kind of back to your cue point. Because basically, what I was asking her, I was really pushing her and trying to engage her on like, what makes you think Matt Matt Tabibi, she couldn't pronounce her name correctly, right. is a Russian asset? And she was like, because everything he writes supports Vladimir Putin. I was like, that's that's on its face not true. So like, none of this is intellectually honest, right? It's to your point about. I think even about reporting now in the mainstream about we don't even know what Russia says, like really, like what, what are their, what are they, we don't even on in good faith engage with their arguments. And, well, we, and she was doing the same thing. She, she doesn't, she, she only knew she, she saw that like Glenn Greenwald had interviewed um, yeah, Alex I, Jones and didn't, wasn't interested in any of the context for that. Um, or why that had happened. Um, so it's super, it seems like we've created a weird soup of, of things where like nobody wants to know a lot of things. People are afraid to look at the actual reporting or the writing or the things that people say because they're yeah. afraid they're like, man, they'll become like a Manchurian candidate or something. And, um, and I'm, I feel like that's right for grifters. And I love the Charles Bousman story. And I love the, I'm forgetting this cop's name, but it would seem that it creates a space in Russia where like you, you can kind of almost don the cloak of being one of these Machiavellian villains and then maybe try to profit on it. So I wonder if you run into any guys like that who are sort of like, Oh, totally. Grif- <laughs> yes please if you have any great grifter narratives i'd love to hear them of guys who have kind of like put on the snively whiplash costume and then like fled to putin's russia and tried to make a, a living in that space well that, uh, yeah yeah F- first of all yeah thanks 
thanks for the question. This is really interesting. I'm going to have to... Um, Bowsman sounds like he got there significantly after I left, but I'll, I'm going to ask my... Um, I'm going to ask all, all my friends who uh, are rather still there or, or recently left if they heard, they heard of him. Uh, so, you know, when I, when I got to Moscow um, in the early 90s, you have to remember that this was a... Uh, so it's a capital city that has a, at the time, a pretty small uh, Western population. But you have a superpower that was trying to open doors to the West and, you know, needed people through whom, uh, with whom to communicate uh, in order to, you know, make itself part of part of the international community. So if you if you just spoke a little bit of Russian um, and, you know, were breathing it was pretty easy to go over there and find some kind of gig that made you money. Now, some, some of them were highly dubious. Like I remember, um, I remember a guy who somehow got into the, like a, uh, a job where, you know, he was essentially what he, what he did is he got, he got in with some Soviet uh, sports equipment company that was still producing hockey pucks at state prices. Um, and so they were buying them on, you know, in bulk and then selling them over in the West. Like a hockey puck is a hockey puck. Uh, so it was this great arbitrage. Uh, there were lots and lots of people like that who were just kind of hanging around waiting for an opportunity. Um, we used to like to joke at the Exile that we were the only people in the city dumb enough not to make money. Uh, off, off uh, because there were people like, you know, even, uh, I, I don't want to be like too accusatory about it, but there are some pretty well-known people who, um, who made enormous sums of money doing things like, uh, buying up cheap shares in oil companies like Sedanco and then reselling them on the Western market and, some of those people subsequently became billionaires. Um, I think that's that's about as as, as specific as I want to be about that one. Um, <laughs> sure. In the in the media world, there there were there were definitely people. The, the thing is, initially there there was a lot of Western media, so you didn't really need to be a scammer uh, to make money. Um, but once Putin came in, the uh, the Western media community got a lot smaller. And, you know, I, I would imagine that there were ways to, you know, to go to, to go work for Russian publications. And once you expressed a willingness to work for something like, you know, RT or whatever it was, um, you know, they, they do pay really excellent money. Uh, so, you know, if, if you if you don't have any other opportunities, I think that that, that was probably an interesting place to land. But. The media isn't the first place that the that the scammer people looked. They got into oil. They 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 got into selling, you know, uh, timber, uh, rare earth metals. I remember one person who was like twenty two years old got into that. Um, there, there was there was just a lot of money to be made for people who probably at home would have been working at a McDonald's. Let's put it that way. 
So, um, but yeah, and the other thing you mentioned about just not being able to see the other, you know, the, the root material, like, uh, again, this is just such a, it's just such a point of contention for me. Like I just, uh, the idea that it's somehow informative not to know, I, I, I just, I, I don't, understand how that works especially if you work in the media that it seems completely counterintuitive to me i don't know about you yeah no it seems like we're heading into a weird dark period and i guess my what i what i really wonder is now are you seeing some of those grifters go back to putin's russia now that it's kind of i don't know it just seems like a great place to end up It, it seems like you can almost trade on this idea that there's a Russian influence campaign. That seems like what Bausman did. He ended up setting up shop and trying to sell kind of like Christian nationalist hokum right. in central Pennsylvania <laughs> and then left when that went bad for him. I, I, I think I think it would be not a smart idea to, to, to go, like even if you were completely without morals and didn't have a, a, an ideological problem with doing it. Um, going to Putin's Russia now is no joke. Like if you were, if you work in a, a big company, you, you will get visited by uh, officials from the security state and you, you know, things could end up very badly for you. Like, you know, the, the, there are people who end up in, 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 in prison or detained uh, for for doing things wrong over there now. I mean, I, I still have friends. Some of them are Russians, uh, a few American. Um, but it's it's not a place where you want to go. Uh, where if you're trying to make easy money, I think I think that would be a bad idea. There, there's, um, you know, even when I was there, obviously my newspaper got shut down by Putin, uh, and that was you know 20 years ago. Uh, so you know, the environment has gotten a lot tougher now. Uh, you know, the me- the media is is more or less completely controlled, but e- even, even businesses right now have a, have a difficult time. It's like, if you're in, if you're in something like the food service business, or you work for a Western company that imports uh, products for supermarkets or something like that, like uh, e- even that's kind of a hazardous place to be. I mean, I've heard some stories about that. So, um, I would think only the most desperate and most uh, most clueless uh, people would would go right now. Although you always find those people abroad, you know, like I, I, I remember being at the Moscow Times and some kid showed up. This was like in the late mid to late 90s, maybe maybe mid 90s. Uh, and I, I guess his idea was that he was going to be a reporter in Chechnya. Um, so having had no journalism experience whatsoever, uh, he appeared in, uh, in Russia, just flew down, um, uh, to Grozny and, uh, you know, they found, they found, they didn't even find his body. They just found a bloodstained backpack a couple of days later. Um, so it's, it's, it's a tough place to be. I don't know. I don't, I don't know that it's a great place for grifters. I think America is a great place for grifters. <laughs> Uh, but, All right, but modern, modern Russia isn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't say. Anyway, thanks for the question. I really appreciate yeah, it. Thank you. All right, thanks, Kelvin. Uh, let's see who's next. 
Mitch, I think. Are you there? Mitch, if you're there, you got to, um, you got to un unmute yourself. Okay. Um, I think the next person up is Piers. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can. Awesome. Uh, I just wanted to ask you about uh, sort of what you think the sort of, you know, in, you wrote in The Great Derangement about how sort of you had all these kind of outcast type people. Uh, at the end of the story, I remember you were talking about a bunch of them, a sort of family was able to reconcile with the, through the Ron Paul campaign sort of thing. But you had, you know, 9-11 truthers on the sort of on the left side of things. You had the kind of more like the people in the church that you were uh, a part of, more on the kind of Christian right. Uh, and then in your your piece this week on on um, the Alex Moyer movie, the, that feeling with no G up. Yep. You're talking about how like if you talk about the alienation in society, that gets coded as right coded. I think mm -hmm. is you used. And I was wondering, do you think that it's kind of like it used to be that you could be sort of like alienation was not a sort of left right thing. If anything, it sort of was outside of that political division in a lot of ways. Like, and but now you've seen like you see that like something like nine eleven trutherism now gets sort of more associated with the right. Even like, yep. do, you, do you agree with my my kind of premise that uh, the alienation side of things has has become associated with the right? And if you agree, do you have any idea why it's become associated with the right? Yeah, I think that, first of all, I think that's a great question. Um, it's something I've been kind of struggling to articulate correctly. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think part of this is, uh, and this is something that Alex Moyer was talking about too. Is uh, you know she she did this movie about these guys, and immediately everybody slaps the label incels on the characters. Now, the, it does mention incel culture in the, in the movies, so that's not totally unfair. Um, but it, it was immediately shoehorned and, and kind of marketed as a movie about right-wing extremists. When actually, you know, and, and she says this in the interview too, that if you talk to, if you talk to all the guys maybe one of them is openly a right winger and the rest of them are somewhere in between um, or, or even on the left. Right. But uh, I think what's happened is that the entire uh, idea of this populist uprising um, has become, has been deemed infamous, has been deemed, antisocial and connected. Like, I think that's, a, that's an important thing. Like it's, uh, you know, I wrote about this also a couple of weeks ago, which is we don't, or at least in the press now, it's very common to not view something like Brexit, the Ukraine war, Donald Trump's election and the end of Roe v. Wade as being all different stories. Like they're, they're all connected now, right? And and it's be, be, because the underlying, the subtext of all uh, sort of narrative journalism now uh, 
is sort of the, the good, sane, pro-science people against the, you know, the forces of autocracy and, reg and regression uh, and reaction. And so, yeah, I think what you're talking about, that, that was, again, that was one of the points I was trying to make is that if you, if you took these same kids from that movie 20, 30 years ago, like they would have been, they would have been punks, right? I, I, I knew people like that, right. Who were just kind of nowhere and listened to angry music and played a lot of video games and, and engaged in behaviors that were probably not healthy. And I was kind of one of those people, though, you know, certainly not with the political edge to it, but, but now I think there's, there's this weird, uh, media emphasis on labeling, uh, that, um, I, I think what they're trying to do is, is basically, uh, make, delegitimize the notion that there are this many people who are unhappy and dissatisfied because groups like that used to be kind of small, but now they're almost a majority. And, and so the only explanation for that, that makes sense is that, is that, you know, the government and society is not performing. It's not doing its job. Well, Some, something is deeply wrong. Um, but um, unless we can say that all these people are defective and have defective beliefs, which I think is what's happening. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think uh, it definitely makes me think of this sort of Martin Gurry book, uh, Revolt of the Exactly. Republic, I know you've, you've read. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, it feels like a protection racket from the center, like uh, like the, to just like everything that's going on on the on the periphery, on the border, all these problems, like. The, because the journalists and the the uh, the kind of media establishment, the the po political establishment, all feel like they're playing on the same team, uh, they all sort of feel intertwined in, in this way. Like they they have to kind of like they feel like they need to go out and make sure to uh, sort of try to act like any criticism of the sort of center is is not legitimate and uh, is sort of just this. You know the the thing you said that Krugman said about um, about how this just comes out of nowhere. Um, that's sort of to me what the, the the protection racket is. It's it's to try to to hide the the sort of the um, where it comes from. And I think that's why like you and and Glenn Greenwald get sort of labeled as right wing a lot of the time. Is it's another way of just trying to kind of make sure that the criticism is not seen as something that's worth engaging in and that the kind of problems come out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. <laughs> I, I hope that, uh, I hope that you're right about that. I mean, uh, you know, I, for me, this, this, this whole change in society, which, um, and, and I, I don't mean to go on about this too long, but, this is a subject I, I think about a lot, so I'm, I'm really glad you asked this question. So, you know, up up through the middle of 2016, I would say that I I felt very very in sync with most of the people in the business. Like I, I didn't think particularly differently than the average person in the media business, even though we didn't always get along very well. Um, you know the most of us kind of looked like 
look at the, at the job in roughly the same way. And we had the same, the same general feeling of kind of detachment toward it. So if you, if you went out in the campaign trail and you covered, um, in Donald Trump or, you know, Mike Huckabee or, or John Kerry, it for, for 95% of the people, it was just a job. Like they didn't care. You know, they, it was, let's get the quotes. Let's, let's, you know, make a few observations and then, then let's go home to our families. Uh, and then somewhere along the line, it changed drastically and the job stopped being about trying to understand phenomena and became this, this propaganda job. And I, I'm just very, A, I'm very poorly suited for that. But B, I, I just think they, when they made that change, they hadn't, fi- they hadn't finished the process of answering this really important question, which was what, you know, why was, why was Donald Trump suddenly like a, a viable candidate for the presidency? The only, the only rational answer to that question is that, you know, the, the existing political establishment was so unpopular uh, and was so dysfunctional that this this was a, a rational choice for for millions of people who would never have gone there before, right? So that's a significant story. So why, what, how does that happen? And it get it happens for all the reasons that you mentioned. That, you know that Martin Gurry mentioned. Um, you know, people have become widely disenchanted with whole ranges of things. They're not happy about NATO. They're not happy about the Middle Eastern wars. They're not happy about um, the fact that their wages are basically stagnant while their, you know, their executive bosses keep getting more and more compensation. I mean, there's a million things they're mad about. Um, But it's much easier to say, well, these people are crazy. Uh, They're xenophobe, racist, alt-right, nuts. and look, there's certainly elements of that, but that's not the whole story. Like you, you can't just cut off the the, the investigation before it's done. And, and I think that's what they did, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. All right, thanks for taking my call. All right, thanks, Pierce. Appreciate it. Um, let's see who's next. I think Tyler is next. Hello, how are you? Hi, are you there? I'm I'm here. Oh, can you hear? Yep. Um, so I, um, I was on last week when, with your, uh, discussion with Chris and that, that conversation was fascinating and I tried to keep it short, but there was so much I've thought about since then that I kind of wanted to kind of dip my toe back in to that sure. discussion today. Well, if there's time also, uh, but before that, uh, I do want to say, Matt, I've been reading your work since the spectacularly insightful coverage of the financial crisis when this took all the rest of us by surprise and we struggled to find out what the hell was going on with it. You kind of were a guiding beacon all those years ago during some incredibly tumultuous times. And I just want to say, like, if there's any way I can contribute to this new newsletter project of yours, I would be absolutely thrilled to. I know it's a big oh. undertaking to kind of launch, you know, something like you're talking about. So if there's any way, you know, that I could make any kind of contribution, I'd be happy to email whatever address is appropriate for that uh, after stream. Right. But um, long, long time fan, so I'd love to help you out if possible. 
just, just quickly, yeah, send an email to taibi at substack.com and make sure you put attention Emily in the subject line. Okay. I'll jot that so, down quickly. Emily Bivens can see it. Um, okay. Anyway. Uh, so- uh, this, I think this conversation dovetails with the earlier conversation that you were having with Chris about woke imperialism, imperialism, because I mean, and, and honestly, it made me remember the article in the, even the, I think it was the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal from a few months ago that said, wokeism has replaced neoconservatism as America's primary intellectual export. Um, and I remember Jackson Hinkle's coverage of that article being particularly hilarious um, the point that I think is, is relevant here is, you know, you, you and Chris and I had this kind of left, right discussion discussing, you know, what, what, you know, right wing meant to me all those years ago, kind of having formed my political awareness in the Bush years, uh, right wing meant, you know, an embrace of state power and imperialism and surveillance state and police state policies and, how modern Democrats, people who call themselves left left and progressive, have embraced those ideas wholeheartedly as the neocons from that era have sort of fled the Republican Party because they whole, whole cloth rejected Trump's imperialism or, or isolationism, rather. Um, and I and I and I I think this uh, th- this this uh, refusal to you know, link to Q and this, you know, like this, this, uh, this, this, you know, uh, censorship and sort of, uh, hiding the, the source material story that you mentioned earlier ties directly into this because it's, um, essentially these, these, these previously extremely right-wing people. And in my opinion, people who are still, you know, extremely right-wing on these imperialism and state power issues, uh, pointing to this like underground conspiracy, you know, anti-imperialist kind of kind of fringe theory, and painting that as the new right wing, and using that moniker to demonize those people in the culture, and sort of hide under this like progressive woke label the fact that their own foreign policy and state, you know, surveillance policies are extremely far right and imperialist and, you know, uh, hostile to dissent and uh, militaristic and even violent in many cases. And mm-hmm. so I was wondering, like, what your thought about that is, you know, as as quote unquote right wing has become, uh, you know, an unacceptable sort of pariah word in our culture, the ability to sort of hide policies that are extremely right wing uh, under the sort of woke you know, progressive umbrella and and demonize sort of fringe theories as the new as the new right, the new thing to kind of resist against. Yeah, no, uh, that's a great great question, and yeah, I, I think you see it with the you mentioned the dyna- dynamic with Q. I, I I think I think that kind of sums up the whole thing, right? Like, so the the battle right now is between it's not really about left and right. It's about insiders and, and outsiders. There's this huge growing, you know, sort of snowballing population of people who feel excluded from the process. And, and that's, 
that's true on the left. It's true on the right. It's true of people who don't care about politics at all. Um, there's just there's just lots and lots of people who don't feel like they have uh, the requisite input on how uh, they don't have enough control over their lives. They don't have enough say, um, and they and they feel like they're sort of second class citizens. And then and then there's this other group of people who. Um, you know, who, who, who are on the inside, right? They, and they live in these little archipelagos of highly functioning America, uh, you know, in places like, you know, parts of Manhattan, you know, the Hamptons and, you know, Northern Virginia, and, you know, the Valley in LA, whatever it is, right? Like it's, it's, it's a few parts of the country that actually work. They live there. They have, there's, if they, well, yeah, mm-hmm. Matt, I, th- I think this speaks directly to to my to my question because honestly, like th- this this is sort of a, a flippening, right? Because it used to be that people who called themselves right wing or conservative were, you know, traditionalist, and and I think in many, I think broadly speaking, you can call them institutionalists, right? People who were happy with the status quo and the way that it was working and wanted to preserve it on sort of a philosophical level, right? That's and the people who were kind of kind of challenging power were sort of the, the left and progressive. And now it's sort of become, and so you had basically see this divide between institutionalists on the right and anti-institutionalists or agents of change on the left. And now you have this point where the institutions have sort of co-opted the language and in many cases, the domestic policies of the left. And so you have, you know, and, and primarily ignored you know the, the 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 foreign policy issues and and the way that those those break down, and so you have you know institutionalists. You have left wing institutionalists now, or people who call themselves left who are actually institutionalists, and people who are anti institutionalists now are largely considered to be right wing. But that's a that's a direct that's directly opposite to the way that it always used to, at least to, at least the way that I was raised in my political awareness, right? It used to be that the institutions were supported by conservatives who wanted to conserve them. And now it seems like the institutions themselves are so liberal that they're supported by, by liberals or people who call themselves liberals, but again, are masking this, in my view, extremely right-wing uh, or what I understand to be traditionally a very right-wing perspective and set of policies, especially on the sort of foreign policy and state issue, state policy issues that, you know, I care so much about. So, I don't, uh, right. It's, it's so, anyway, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it there. What's what's your insight on that, Matt? Well, yeah, first of all, you're exactly right. I mean, what, what, what does the word conservative mean? Right. You, you, you mentioned it. It's the whole idea was to conserve the, the status quo to keep, to keep things, in place, right? So, you know, the the old conservatives had their own language about that, right? Like they, you know, I don't even re- I don't even remember it, frankly. But we we have new language now uh, that is inherently conservative, um, but but it speaks it speaks in this um, in, in a progressive tone, right? So we talk about the preservation of norms. Uh, which is is very important, right? I mean, I, I I agree on some level that it's important to make sure that we stay parts of you know stay in certain treaties and 
um, and that the institutions continue to function. Uh, but would, I, I think I think it's inaccurate to talk about all these people who are, you know, they really are outsiders, right? Whether whether they're right or left, um, the people the, the people who are usually described as um, driving this populist uprising uh, or this quasi-populist uprising, whatever, like they're. they're they're not conservatives in any real sense, right? Like they're, they're, they're angry and they, they want to throw the bums out, you know? Um, and so that's, I, I think what we're, what you're talking about is this kind of semantic trickery that's going on at institutions, but also especially in the media um, as a way of just kind of masking who's who. You know, the, the, you know, the, Occup- the Occupy movement talked about the 1% and the 99%. I, I, think, I think it's roughly the same divide that we're talking about here, um, except that, you know, the, these, this new propaganda technique tries to paint the, 90, you know, the 99% as, as being, um, you know, right-wing, dangerous, and, um, you know, and a threat. So in, in some cases, maybe they are, there's a, there, there is like some of that, but that's not all of it, which is what drives me nuts about this. That I, I think you put your finger on it, right? There's nothing conservative about trying to throw the bums out and they, they're labeled as, as right wing. And yet the people doing it are often advocating the same exact policies and in many cases are the same exact people as the right wing extremists from the Bush era neocons, right? So oh, yeah. I think, I think that, 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 that important fact of, you know, Bill Crystal calling somebody a right winger, uh, I think, I think is lost on many, especially people who are like my age and younger. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, um, I, you got a lot of callers, Matt. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I just want to say that the, we've gotten to the point where people don't, they don't know to laugh when Bill Crystal calls somebody a right winger. Right. Like, so that's. <laughs> That, that, that's how far that, far gone the whole thing is. But anyway, Tyler, thanks so much. And please, please do write in. Uh, if, if, uh, if we can find uh, something for you to do, that would be great. I would love it. So, uh, Absolutely. I'll, I'll send that this afternoon. Talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you. All right. Let's see, let's see who we have here. Um, looks like Gavania. Are you there? Yes. yes. No. Uh, yes. Uh, you were there. I'm here now. Hi. Hello. I'm sorry. You are. For some reason, That's the it. app is a little difficult to unmute. I apologize about that. That's okay. Thanks for thanks for coming in. Um, I just wanted to say that I appreciate your work, Matt, and I uh, have a lot of gratitude for everything that you've done and the effort you've made so far. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate it. I just have one simple question, if you mm-hmm. uh, don't mind. Uh, what is your opinion of Joe Rogan? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, thanks for the question. I, I, I love Joe. I mean, I, 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 I've done the show um, three times. I've met him. Um, you know, we, we haven't had a whole lot of uh, interaction, but we're both from Boston. We, ha- we have some shared roots. Uh, you know, I, 
I, I like him. I think, you know, the, he gets an incredibly bad rap. Um, does he say some things sometimes that I disagree with? Absolutely. Uh, does he, does he talk to some people, uh, you know, in some of those interviews, the things, the things get said that, um, you know, can be, it can be a little nutty. Yes. But, but Joe's insight and, and, and this is amazing. It's really his, his rise and his career is such an incredible reflection. Um, story and it's such an incredibly negative reflection on uh, on traditional media because you know in, in addition to just being very genial and, and kind of charming and, and interesting um, Joe's main insight was well I'm curious I'll just I'll talk to every, anybody uh, and he sits down with people of, of all stripes and has these long discussions with them, and there's there's no judgment, right? Like very occasionally he'll get mad, but mostly he's just curious. It's like and it's genuine curiosity, which I think was once a a real prerequisite for for being in the media. Like if you, if you weren't genuinely curious about how people thought or or uh, how things worked, you, you couldn't do this job. Now in curiosity is like a prerequisite, but his, his whole thing about, well, I'll talk to anybody. Let's, let's have a conversation. Uh, and that mood of it being sort of unthreatening and cat and uncasual and unscripted and real, um, people had such a hunger for that because they were so used to the, the fakeness of corporate media that they, you know, they flock to him, and you know, to the tune of him, he's he's worth a hundred million dollars now because of that, um, which is, and, and again, I, I love I love the show, uh, but it's but it's also I think um, a reflection. And just the last thing I'll say is, Joe, what he does is he he practices a, a an interview style that's gone very much out of vogue. Um, you know, if you, if you go back and you look at people like um, Charlie Rose, say uh, the the classic interview technique, and I and I was kind of taught this way too, um, is you, you're trying to build a rapport with your subject. You, you want you want them to do the talking. You, you want if if you have a negative feeling about them, uh, you don't want to be the one to be pointing that out. You want, you, you want them to hang themselves if that's what's going on. Uh, but, but more than anything, the, the key, the point of an interview is to try to communicate to the audience, you know, what these people are all about, what, why they think the way they do, how they, how they came to their opinions, like um, what they would think in a hypothetical future situation it's educational. It's informational. The point of an interview was not to like dunk on somebody. It was. It, it was. It, it was supposed to leave viewers with a better um, understanding of what that person uh, is all about. And he does that. And and that's just a. It's a style that's just missing now. So uh, I'm sorry I went on, but I, I feel I feel pretty strongly about Joe's show and. Um, uh, I, I hope um, I hope that answers your question. So, thank you very much. All right, thanks very much, community. I'm gonna.
I want to do a couple of more. So th- thanks for everybody who's, who, uh, who's hung in. But uh, let's see who's here. Uh, looks like Curl. Curl Malone. That's a good name. I'm assuming this is a basketball fan. Uh, if you're there... All right, I'm going to move on. Going once, going twice. All right. Are you there, Matt? Oh, yes, I am. Okay. You got it. Oh, can you hear me? I can, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, I was just calling for an update on your book project because I'm very interested in um, the kind of COVID era and what, what profits were made and where the money went, where it came from. How did all that happen? Because I feel like more so than any other story, we've gotten so little information that can actually be verified. So that's my question. That's great. Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I am working on it, and uh, I'm making progress. I'm sure my editor would would say that I'm not making enough progress. But uh, look, I, I can tell you what the overarching conclusion of the book is going to be already, which is... Um, you know, if you, if you if you look at the pandemic in the let's just go back to the mid March 2020, um, and the stock market is about to go to the floor. Companies like Delta Airlines and you know a host of others were about to see their market capitalization go to zero or or you know somewhere near that. All, all, all sorts of companies were about to go out of business. And suddenly we, we signed this CARES Act, which basically took the, um, you know, it, it took the leash off the Fed and they were in, uh, in, enabled and empowered to, to enter into this massive buying program uh, where they, you know, they ultimately spent pretty close to $5 trillion dollars uh between between that the middle of march and let's just say earlier this year so the story ultimately is going to be about well uh, who got most of that money and there were a hundred different scams that went on in various industries um you know wherein the executives figured out what take kind of the, the temporary flood of relief money and convert it into cash that they could then uh, keep personally. And it's, so it's just, it's just another bubble story like the 2008 mortgage bubble, same thing, not that inflated. Uh, Carl, if you could, you want to mute yourself while I'm talking to you. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, but, uh, but yeah, the, um, just to take an example, so you know the defense sector at the at the outset of uh, of COVID, as part of the the reforms surrounding the CARES Act, all of the contractors were essentially paid the balance of their contracts in advance. They were just giving cash, uh, whether they were ha- could deliver the the products or not. So if you had a contract to build helicopters or F-35s or whatever it was, um, and the government had contracted you the money, 
uh, to, 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 to make all that stuff. It just gave you the money what, and you didn't have to buy the helicopters, right? Or, or make the helicopters, at least not yet. Uh, so, so what did these companies do? Like the, you, you can look this up. You'll find a few stories about it, but not many. Uh, the big five defense contractors uh, all entered into these massive stock buyback programs which is just another way of saying that the executives of the company uh, gave themselves raises and enabled um, that that enabled them to to essentially take profits and capital out of their own companies, and they you know they stowed tens of millions, if not billions, of dollars, um, you know, in their in as personal compensation. So you 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 take a program that was worth many billions of dollars of, of public dollars you say you send it to a to a company like lockheed martin or uh general dynamics or whatever and you know within six months or so it ends up in the personal bank account of the executives and that's kind of what happened right so you, you, you it's it's one thing like that after another you know it's private equity owned companies that used that use the the easy lending environment to to do takeovers at the same time that, um, you know, the people were losing jobs. Uh, so it, 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 in almost every chapter, it's going to end up being some version of, um, you know, a, a, an industry that figured out how to take advantage of emergency programs and emergency money uh, to convert it into personal profits. And uh, un- unfortunately, there's a lot of material. So I hope that answers your question. Um, just real quick, just a quick follow up. I was curious: is it is are the mechanisms they're using the same that you wrote about in in, in two thousand nine, two thousand ten uh, during the uh, you know the financial crisis? And that thank you again. Your work is uh, totally appreciated. Thank you, man. No, no, thank you. Um, uh, it's a good question. So some of it's the same, uh, and I think if you if you were to read. You know the work of somebody like uh, Nomi Prinz, uh, who has written a bunch of books about um, about the Federal Reserve. Uh, th- this is another version of the same story of uh, basically financial insiders who um, who take advantage of uh, basically central banking programs uh, and figure out ways to siphon the funds out of the economy before there's before they get a chance to trickle down to actual people um, and there there was a lot of that that went on both before the bu- bubble burst with the mortgage story and then afterwards when you, know, you had zero interest rate policy and then you had uh, quantitative easing and all sorts of other ways that the, you know, we dumped money into the financial markets. But the, the, and the idea was always supposed to be that this was going to somehow um, end up resulting in real world, um, uh, you know, economic improvement but what it what actually happened and we saw this pretty dramatically in the especially in the first uh six to eight years after the crash 
is that uh, the you know the finance sector uh, did dramatically better uh, during that period, and ordinary people um, didn't didn't do so well, and the wealth gap expanded significantly during that kind of extended bailout period, and we we've seen the same thing happen um, during the last two years, especially. And I, I, I think it's going to get worse now that we're headed towards, a, you know, a pretty serious correction. But, uh, but yeah, that, that's what happened, right? Like the, the, the bailout programs are designed to, to basically be up, upfront compensation mechanisms for people who are, who are properly positioned. Just to take one more example, when the Fed starts doing things like issuing, um, you know, lend, lending money to every corp- corporation in America so that they can stay alive, well, that requires a bond issue, and somebody has to underwrite that bond issue. And who's going to underwrite the bond issue? Well, it's going to be investment banks. And so, you know, you can go and look at the news stories. You'll see that every single one of the big big investment banks set records for underwriting fees in 2020. And 2021, um, you know, well over $100 billion for the industry. Uh, and where does that money go? It, you know, mostly goes to, to stock buybacks and, again, executive compensation and all that stuff. And so uh, money that was intended, yes, they, 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 they kept some of these zombie companies alive. They, they didn't let companies like Delta go out of business, which I, I think is probably a good thing, but, um, but the big, big money uh, mostly got siphoned off by uh, larger actors. So I uh, hope that answers your question. Thank you so much, man. Again, we appreciate your work. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Carl. I appreciate it. A couple more maybe. Um, and again, th- th- thank you. Let's, uh, let's see. I think Wail is, is waiting. Are, are you next? Hello. Hi. Hi. Hi, Matt. Um, I'm really into uh, two questions. First, I'm really interested in what you're doing with the FSB. I happen to have lived in Basel for a number of years, so uh, I know a lot of people that worked at the FSB and the biz. And I've always been interested in how undercovered that is. So I'm really interested to know um, how that's like, if we can talk to us, tell us about that. And the other thing I wanted to talk Wait, to the, is the, the FSB. I'm sorry, what? The, the, yeah. the Russian Secret Service? I thought you were talking about the Financial Stability Board in Basel. Oh, 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 oh I'm sorry. Okay. Oh, the, okay. Yes. You mentioned that in a recent thing about like you were contacting people on some of the worst. I assumed it was the FSB, but now I see why you would be talking about the Russian intelligence agency. I thought you were talking about the Basel Accords, the FSB Financial Stability Board. Right, right. Yeah. No, the um, there, well, there's the one with the, 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 I think I was talking about the Financial Stability Oversight Council, which I think is the Fed, maybe. Uh, but. Ah. The FSB is in the biz in Basel. Right. And it's the, the, I think uh, the, it was created after 2008 uh, by the G20 to figure out the, the messes of the, of the 2008 crash. Right. Right. Yes. Uh, okay. Uh, 
so I guess that doesn't really uh, count. So my second question is more to do with Washington, D.C. As someone that's lived here since, oh, on and off, uh, since 2003, um, I would say that like any kind of reform to try to do is just really difficult because most of the people that I encounter at the high levels, of, let's say at the SEC or the bank or the treasury, are are um, they're just so bought into capitalism realism? And if you look at like the economists that work at the the Fed or any of that, I mean, they're just so caught up in the neoliberal mind frame that they really can't conceive of anything outside that. So I think part of a challenge that we have as a society in terms of coming up with new ideas is that they don't have any ideas um, because all they've had is the diet of neoliberalism and markets and and all that. So we're kind of caught in this. I just wanted to know if you comment, if you have any comments on that or what your experience has been of the mindset in order of, to try to get something different rather than just ZERP and bailouts and, you know, quantitative easing and all that? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really good question. Um, so when, when I first got assigned to cover uh, the 2008 crash, you know, my, my, my first response was it, it probably shouldn't be me because I know nothing about e- economics. Uh, but then, you know, when I got into it, uh, I was forced to talk to a lot of people who worked both, um, I'm sorry, could, could you mute yourself? Cause of, uh, what, uh, I'm hearing like clicking noises. If, if I'm sorry, hold on. <laughs> uh, but, but, uh, but, um, so I, I ended up having to talk to a lot of people who worked either as regulators or in the financial services industry or, um, you know, were investors themselves or own hedge funds. And uh, and so that was the one of one of the, I think the problems with that. And, and when I when I look back and I and I wonder did I do this exactly correctly uh, is almost everybody I talked to, to try to sift through stories like, well, what happened that, that caused the ratings agencies to kind of misfire and lose sight of what their essential function was, or um, how does municipal bond big bid rigging work or, uh, you know, what what happened with the bailout? You know, in the in the Dodd Frank negotiations, uh, who got short shrift? You know, all these different questions that were a lot of them were highly technical, and I didn't really have a um, a lot of pre existing knowledge about a lot of those topics. So it, almost everything that I got was from um, people who were already in the industry. And, um, you know, I, I wonder sometimes, because if you go back and look, you'll, you'll find that even though I was pretty critical of a lot of those companies, uh, it, it's, it's fundamentally a capitalist critique, right? Because uh, just for, take an example, obviously I read a lot about Goldman Sachs, uh, but the complaints that I got about Goldman Sachs, the reason I did that story 
is because I had so many people uh, from within the financial services industry uh, who were complaining about too big to fail banks. Uh, a few of them singled out Goldman, uh, but the, it wasn't always Goldman. It was Bank of America and Chase and, and others. Be, be, because of this uh, sort of larger feeling that they all had that um, essentially the bigger, too big to fail companies had become quasi state enterprises. And it was, you know, capitalism for me and socialism for thee, right? Like that, that, that was the big complaint of a lot of these sources that I had who, you know, these weren't poor people. Uh, these weren't activists. They were mid-level bankers and, uh, you know, people who, uh, who still worked on Wall Street. They just didn't, they just didn't have the $30 million a year jobs on Wall Street, right? Um, so I never really got to those macro questions about whether this is the right you know, financial system for the world or, or whatever it was. Really, most of the stuff that I did was, was um, you know, is, it, it, are, are things fair? Are we, are we, are we doing things accor according to the existing rules, right? Like, can we, can we, can we at least get to that? before we, we think in a, in a broader way, just to take an example, you know, after the bailouts, um, yeah, I got, I got calls from a lot of regional bankers, right? Like, so there were, there were people who worked in functioning, uh, small banks, um, or smaller banks who, who were basically saying, well, we, we are now at a fundamental business disadvantage um, because the entire market knows that the government is never going to let uh, Chase or Bank of America go out of business. And ba Bank of America was, was a company that a lot of people complained about because they had made a catastrophic uh, decision to bring it to, to acquire Countrywide, which was, you know, uh, in, in an actual pure capitalist system, that would have been a fatal move. They, they, you know, they would have been inheriting um, a disaster. They were basically saying these companies can borrow money more cheaply than we than we can because everybody knows they they will always be able to pay their debts because they will always be bailed out, and they don't know that about us. So, you know, they have like a twenty basis point advantage on us when we go to borrow money and in bank, since everything in banking is about the cost of capital, um, we're going to eventually go out of business and they're going to eventually take our business. And so that's a capitalist critique, right? Like they, they, they just wanted everything to be on a level playing field. And so I never even got, I never even got to those questions. If that, if that makes sense, does that make sense? You can unmute yourself. Yeah, yeah, that does make sense. Um, um, that does make sense because, uh, like you said, there's no way to get to beyond that because we're always dealing with what's at hand. Right, um, right. And the other thing, too, I've also noticed is that, like, when you're talking with regulators especially, and, and I was uh, partnered with a regulator for a very long time, and when you talk to anybody in the regulation, they'll always admit, oh, yeah, companies are always going to do the worst thing and, you know, the fine is always going to be a slap on the wrist, right? 
it's never going to be anything meaningful. I think the other day, uh, Warren Buffett's outfit had been busted, uh, like red zoning uh, mortgages for black people or something like that. Um, and they paid $20 million, as, and not even as a fine, as like to put $20 million available for like minorities to borrow. Right, um, right. Which is absolutely, you know, it doesn't count, like doesn't even close. So they'll admit you to that. But then at the same time, it's like, well, you know, it's what we got. It's like the joke about like, uh, you know, my brother thinks he's a chicken. So get him committed. But he's like, but I need the eggs. Right. Right. I mean, like, there's some kind of and, and I don't know how we're ever going to get anywhere if like that's all, you know, I don't know what's going to change that, I guess. It's more my despair. <laughs> no, I, I, well, if you know, if you're in the regulatory world, you know, but uh, that's a huge problem. I mean, it, yeah. If you if you look back, I did a story once called the Nine Billion Dollar Witness um, about a whistleblower named Elaine Fleischman from Chase, and you know I think the the big crux of that story was uh, Chase had all these regulatory issues, but the entire thrust of the regulatory response was let's find let's make sure that we um, you know, don't charge them with anything that will that will automatically trigger a loss of their charter, even though they may be guilty of that. Right? Uh, we saw the same thing with um, HSBC. Right? It's it England's largest bank, Europe's largest bank. They get busted for laundering over eight hundred million dollars for. Um, for among other things, you know, like the Sinaloa drug cartel, uh, which is like the worst, it, it's like the worst financial crime you can probably possibly commit. I would think, you know, these, you know, these are people suspected in, you know, over a thousand murders. And the, the fine ended up being something like $1.9 billion. But the amazing part about it was that a significant portion of that fine was was tax deductible, right? So, you know, you, th you think about think about that in the context of what pu punishment for an ordinary person would be like. Like, he, if you get a speeding ticket, do you get to deduct that from your taxes? Uh, no, of course not. Like, the, you know, you don't want to incentivize a a uh, you know a person to go speeding, right? So uh, these. The government and the regulators now are essentially in the business, and they have been, I think, um, since the Arthur Anderson debacle uh, of crafting settlements that are designed to make sure that nobody ever goes out of business and 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 that no offense ever ends up being fatal to a company, um, which is why you see phenomena like you know, companies being explicitly instructed uh, that if they commit fraud again, uh, a certain kind of fraud again, they're going to be put out of business and then they do it again and again and again and again. Um, that's why that, there was a judge named Jed Rakoff who, who uh, put his foot down over that uh, a while ago. Uh, and, you know, he was he was seen as sort of stepping out of line because he was he, he was refusing to accept a slap on the wrist settlement. Uh, so I I think it's going to be tough for us to get out of that pattern, uh, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. Just one quick question. Uh, the book Lords of Easy Cash, of Easy Money about the Fed. Have you read it? And what do you think of it? And I'll hang up. From- I haven't read it, but I would, uh, I would love to because I have to read more about the Fed for the book that I'm writing and played on. So Lords of Easy Cash? Yeah, I believe it's called Lords of Easy Money. And it came out just a little bit ago. Like okay. it's very contemporary. It's all about the COVID crisis and it uses that haunted guy as the um, the the Fed chief in the beginning. It's it's really interesting, especially the last couple of chapters about um, since um, since uh, Powell took over and and that whole. It's really interesting. I would definitely recommend. I'm almost done with it. All right, Christopher Leonard. I just bought it. So thanks very oh, much. Excellent. Thank you, Matt. All right, take care now. All right, I'm going to do uh, one more. Uh, thanks to everybody who's hung in. I know it's been it's been a while, but um, uh, let's see who's here. Uh, Richard, uh, are you there? Yeah, I'm here. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Hey, it's a very honor, a big honor to talk to the number one all-time draft pick of the Mongolian basketball team. <laughs> I don't think I would have been a number one. I don't think I would have gone in the well, maybe maybe in the first round. We'll see. It would be tough. Uh, yeah. Well, my question is, the media has basically, with 2016 with Trump, turned into the right wing caricature that they were always painted as. What do you see as the future for media, and and is it going to get worse? I'm sure it probably can, but what do you think you see in the future for that? Oh, God. Um, well, that's a great question. Obviously, I've spent a lot of time thinking about it. Uh, I've written a lot of it. I, I, I think the, the media in its present form um, uh, just doesn't... It, 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 there isn't a whole lot of growth in, in front of it in its present form because uh, the public is media politicized. Uh, Richard, I'm sorry, I got to do I got to ask you to mute yourself uh, if you can. Um, we'll talk. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I think the, the, the public, the public sees media as politicized and, um, and untrustworthy on the facts and unreliable and uninformative. They feel like what they're getting is a political product and not an information product. So, uh, you know, the old habit of just listening to the news um, to, to get information. I mean, I, I knew a, um, I knew a guy who worked as a TV producer in the nineties. Obviously my father was a television reporter. So I knew a whole lot of people who worked in the TV business. And um, this producer friend of mine, used to say that the the operating uh, philosophy of the news back then was uh, we, that you wanted to find stories where people would say, isn't that weird? Uh, <laughs> in other words, you, you, were, you were trying to get stuff that was interesting, but like kind of inoffensive, um, which, look, may, may not be the greatest way to do media, but that's, that was something that um, you know, people had, they, they didn't have a difficult time uh, keeping the news on sort of as background or reading it as a ritual or uh, doing any of those things because they weren't being asked to accept 
a political opinion all the time uh, in order to consume the product. And it is a product. Uh, the current form of the, of the media, it, it just assaults you uh, in every line with political premises that make it very difficult to consume passively, just as, as information. So I, I think what's going to happen in America has a has a very rich tradition of innovation in journalism. Uh, you know, we have some of the most amazing figures who've ever worked in this field uh, came out of the United States. You know, whether you're, whether it was Ida Tarbell or or Tom Wolfe or or Hunter Thompson or um, you know, Walter Winchell, even uh, like you know, there, somebody always comes up with a uh, a new format, a new way to approach uh, doing the news that catches on. And we've always been really good at innovating our way out of problems in this business. Uh, the The thing that uh, has been kind of depressing for me in the last six years is, is that. Um, is, is is watching what was once a very creative and open-minded business in some ways, right? Like, it, the, especially the magazine industry was always looking for creative people, interesting people, people who had a, a different way of looking at things. It's become incredibly rigid, um, and so I I don't I don't have a lot of hope that the answer is going to come from your traditional news companies. I think it's going to come from somebody like. Um, Joe Rogan or, you know, some somebody who just happens to be doing something independently, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I really appreciate it. Uh, I'll tell you, keep doing what you're doing. You're a breath of fresh air. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks, Richard. I really appreciate it. And thank you to everybody who came out today. Um, I know it's Saturday. I hope, hope everybody has uh, fun stuff lined up. I know it's really hot if you live on the East Coast, uh, so hang in there, use use that air conditioning, and um, hope you have a good weekend. Thanks so much for uh, devoting part of your day to this this show, and uh, I will uh, see you again next week. Uh, Again, check in the TK because we have have some interesting plans for, uh, for next Friday, so uh, if, if you're a subscriber... Uh, watch the site in the middle of the week and we we, we might have an uh, an announcement or two. Um, And hopefully I'll see you then. So thanks very much uh, to the 512 people in this room. And I will, uh, I will see, hopefully see you again soon. All right. Take care.